Okay, welcome back to our talk about the RTO standards. We've moved forward now into standards 1.5 through to 1.8. Uh, and the first part of that standard talks about industry relevance. Uh, so it says in 1.5, the RTO's training and assessment practices are relevant to the needs of industry and are informed by industry engagement. 1.5 for me is that the training provider reflects industry needs and that industry hasn't had, had an influence on how the training has been planned and executed and feedback has been received. So there is an alignment with the, the RTO isn't just going off in one direction, but is actually aligning itself to where is industry now, where's it going, and is the training provided relevant and up to date with uh, what the industry needs. And that's exactly what it is. And I think this actually boils down a lot of what um, vet training is all about. If you listen to what the government uh, talks about quite regularly, it's always about meeting the needs, the training needs of the workforce. Yeah. So that really boils it down. So in a practical sense, um, what are some ways here at Spec Training that uh, we like to engage industry? How do we make a note of that? Who are the kinds of people that we talk to? Um, not necessarily naming specific clients, but um, what kind of procedures do we have in place to make sure that our stuff is industry engaged, so yeah, to speak? Yeah, it's a great question because it's, it's about, it's threefold. Mm. So it's three components to it. First, we're in an unusual position because we're teaching trainers and trainers across all industries. So therefore we're not trying to train trainers for specific industries. Uh, we're just trying to give them the skill set that they can use that's transferable. So the way we originally designed our training assessment strategy was exactly that. We thought, okay, this is a generic strategy. Therefore, we're going to choose these core and, and elective subjects. Why? Because that's how it feeds into each other. Not that there's many electives to choose from for the TAE, but um, definitely with the diplomas. And then we looked at also the assessments themselves. So the way we've designed our assessments in, from the TAS is that we use units of competency from the TAE to do the assessments, the validations on. Why should we do that? Well, it highlights the importance of the principles of assessment and rules of evidence, which we're going to cover in a second. It's something the student is expected to know and have some sort of industry currency in it, even just by doing the course. Uh, so if we just pulled out a, uh, and we do use a, a business unit and a health unit as well in the assessments, but again, we've chosen two very generic units, a communication one, or I think it's customer service, and the other one is um, the first aid qualification. The reason, again, very generic across the board. Most people, a bit like work health and safety, will have some exposure to those things, whether they've done it before, or it's just an easier assessment template to work through. Uh, so that's the first fold, would you believe? Mm. The second part is who do we engage in industry? Yeah. So our industry is TAE, VET. Uh, so therefore, we have to engage well-respected and high-quality people from the industry. That includes competitors. Mm -hmm. So we've had in the most recent TAS review, which was only last month, we sent it out to someone we are familiar with who works as a consultant, but we also sent it out to somebody who I've known for many, many years, but is a direct competitor of ours, uh, especially in the, the um, resources part of things. But that's kind of how the community works. You know, we all want to make sure everyone's doing the right thing. So she was great uh, and, and responded really well to with a lot of good input into the TAS. And in the past, we've also engaged a, a full-on competitor here on the Gold Coast who trains TAE and, and she and us, again, work together really well. So yeah, that, that's how we engage industry. 
that's for developing the TAS and the training assessment, which uh, is what this is really talking about. We make sure it's relevant to mm. industry. The third part of that is then just our own research. Mm -hmm. So how do we do that? And it's a bit like PD for a trainer. Mm. You go to conferences, mm. you listen to people like Iteca and Velg and, and, the, and you look at the discussions on LinkedIn from um, RTO consultants. You look at all the things that are causing the industry, a little bit of pain here and there. You know, what do we do about it? And when you put all those things together, you're almost continually improving. I know we're supposed to anyway, but we're almost continually improving the products, the way we engage and so on. And most recently, and we're still ironing out the finer details, but we've engaged with the University of Queensland to then say, okay, well, how about quality in mm. training? So from a, an external body who's really interested in learning, uh, and by that I mean not themselves, but they're interested in the topic of learning and, and uh, cognitive psychology, and we're going to hopefully have their help in doing research with us to come up with some um, metrics around what is quality training as well. So we've really spread ourselves across the whole gamut of the vet industry to make sure we are industry relevant. Fantastic. So I'll ask you now, Yeah. how about those industries who aren't like us, the ones mm. who are directly maybe providing training to hairdressers or beauticians or steel fabrication, things like that? How do they keep up to date? In one of my previous roles, I actually worked at a paramedic college and uh, that college was in a unique position that it was actually training uh, students in deployment paramedicine. So its industry essentially was the future work of working as a state paramedic which was great. So any of the um, TASs that were developed were then taken to the state um, paramedic associations and you know they were asked for feedback on those hazards mm -hmm. then also getting feedback from them on the equipment that was being used as part of the training um, also the assessments were they realistic were they not mm -hmm. and as it got closer to audit uh, realize the importance of documenting those interactions because a lot of those interactions yeah. can be very informal and you know we may flick off an email here and there but we you know we may not think about actually recording that as a piece of evidence and so Creating a um, industry engagement log was really important for that organization and for every organization just to keep a note of any and every time you do speak to industry. And I think one of the things that it highlights in the user guide for the standards, um, which is a great document to look into, it mentions in that document that just getting one of your trainers to you know sign something off is not really considered industry engagement, so to speak. So um, other industries, you look at uh, car manufacturing or you know automotive or different things like like that if you're teaching um automotive where well, you want to be speaking to the dealers regularly you want to be um going meeting with them face to face and recording those conversations that you have um sending emails back and forth that's all industry engagement mm. and making sure that whatever you're teaching is up to date and also then following up if you have trained up an apprentice and they've gone to a shop and started working there well then calling them up and saying how was that apprentice's performance uh, did okay. they actually meet the requirements of what is required for the job and so all of that stuff so to speak that we would often consider informal can actually form a huge part of industry engagement oh i completely agree and i, and I failed to mention that but you're right the uh, the recording of it is incredibly important mm. uh, one other thing i would like to bring to the table and it's kind of discussed in 1.6 so i'll quickly read that and then we'll just uh, finish off on industry relevance it says the rto implements a range of strategies for industry engagement engagement uh, and systematically uses the outcome of that industry engagement to ensure the industry relevance of their training assessment strategies and practices 
and B, the currency of their uh, trainers and assessors. So we, we've kind of talked about the things we can do there. Mm. But the, the other thing that came to mind as, we were, as you were talking about that was when we do have larger clients, and we're, we're fortunate enough to have some very regular large clients, we do consult with them because mm. training for them is slightly different. Yes. So they need it delivered in a slightly different way. And we might call it contextualization, but you know, we should be writing a learning program for, mm. for those people. When I say should be, we are writing a learning program for those people and training plans for those uh, individual students, uh, depending on how they're going to go through the training. So that's another form of recording your industry consultation. So if you're fortunate enough to have a big client, like uh, let's say you're feeding into a, a large industry body. I don't want to get too specific, and so I'm trying to avoid it. But let's say you're doing work health and safety and you're feeding a lot of people into Rio Tinto, for instance, mm. then you are going to be obviously consulting with Rio Tinto to make sure that the training is of standard, it's relevant. Uh, and that's when the good old range statement used to come into play mm. is to make sure you could fiddle with that, but that no longer applies. So you just got to contextualize it to make sure it fits them. And then, as you said, record it. Yes, so yeah, definitely. no, that's, that's great. That's really good information. The next one is learner support. Mm. Um, 1.7 says, the RTO determines the support needs of individual learners and provides access to educational and support services necessary for that individual to meet the requirements of the training product as specified in the uh, VET package. So individual learners. I mean, that that to me uh, is what we do on a day-to-day basis. If we're not bending over backwards to try and fit a student's schedule, to fit a student's needs, we're not doing our job. So mm. we kind of do it culturally anyway here. But if I was a new RTO, how would I apply that? What sort of things could I put in place, do you reckon? It's a huge can of worms. Um, <laughs> and um, I think Asqua uh, did an amazing video on this exact topic, which was in their Spotlight series. Mm. Um, and they really talked about the nuts and bolts of it. I think it all comes under the heading of what is reasonable. Because um, as you are running a course, there's going to be certain expectations that a student would need to meet in order to successfully travel through the course. Mm -hmm. Then any gaps and deficiencies need to be supported, so to speak. Uh, It ties back to an earlier conversation we've had around digital literacy. So what is going to be the required um, survival skills to get through? What deficiencies may exist and how far would the RTO be willing to support and then uh, having frank and open conversations with potential enrollees saying, okay, we can offer this level of support. Would this be sufficient? You know, and being able to navigate that conversation away yeah. that the learner themselves uh, makes the decision whether to enroll or not enroll based on what's available. Yeah. Um, and I think whenever ASQA is auditing an RTO, they're looking to see, is that support being made known to the student? Yeah. Is it systemic? Yes. So it used to be a thing many, many years ago that do you have a... Uh, a student handbook. Mm. That was like their guide to everything. But that's not. Now, you've got to have other evidence. So you've mm. got to have systems in place. What do you do when a student comes to you and says, I've got a digital literacy issue Yes. Um, at the last minute? Oh, okay. What can we do? Mm. And nowhere in here, nowhere mm. in here does it say reasonable. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? So a very forthright auditor could come to you and say, it says educational support services necessary for Mm. the individual to meet that requirements. Mm. Why haven't you done that? Mm. And you've got to go, well, that that student, you know, something went wrong. Mm. (laughs) Mm. So it is an interesting one from a uh, a legal or standards point of view. Um, But systemically, if you've got all those things in place, then number one, you should pick up 
on the issue before they start. Mm. That would be the biggest thing. Uh, and two, what the, the services have to come to a standard that would be, I think, would be reasonable, as you said. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that would cover it. Yeah. Without getting too much into it. I think from personal experience, as long as there's uh, a learner support statement uh, that exists uh, as part of enrollment and as part of ongoing support, mm. and uh, then you've got evidence to show where that policy procedure has actually been followed in a number of different cases, mm. then you're covering yourself. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm so tempted to share one of ours, but uh, it, I can imagine the comments. Mm. But... Um, one of our, okay, I'm going to say it. One of ours is, is when we very first contact students, we tell them they can contact us 24-7, mm. seven days a week, and we have a, um, a response policy of t uh, two days. That's just response. And the only reason we say two days is because weekends, mm. but it would be one day uh, normally, and, and usually it's within, within the same day. Uh, and that is for any issue from mm. training to assessment to family issues to whatever mm. they have a problem with that's going to affect their training and their outcomes. Uh, and we would have hundreds and hundreds of emails from yourself, mm. uh, from all our trainers, from our support staff, um, getting back to them, trying. You know, so we've got no problem with that. And that's kind of that statement out there. Uh, and that's why I'm saying we might get some comments because that's a pretty broad um, promise to make. Mm. But I'll say, fortunately, we're small enough to do that. Large organizations like TAFE have to have a completely separate data-driven support system uh, in place, great. You know, they've got mm. really good that they pick up on students who are having any sort of issues through all these different metrics and then they know, okay, this person needs to be contacted. On uh, a trainer level, I think one interesting thing about this is that a lot of support may exist, but students need to be right-minded to actually exist. And I think there could be a lot of like how-to videos or a lot of different <laughs> things out there that sometimes students need to be prompted mm. uh, because it just isn't top of mind. So um, do want to definitely encourage all RTOs to have a reminder policy or a kind of uh, reminder campaign to let students know of what else they offer so that students are taking full advantage of whatever the RTO has available. Yeah. I'm just conscious of time because I do want to cover this last part, which is assessment mm. 1.8. Um, and this is where the uh, principles of assessment and rules of evidence are lodged into regulations and therefore become uh, quasi-law. Mm -hmm. We have to follow them. And I, I love it. These are my favorite things. That's why I wrote the uh, assessment chapters of the textbook. I actually have a huge belief in these. Um, so the RTO implements an assessment system that ensures that assessing, including recognition of prior learning, A, complies with the assessment requirements of the relevant training package, absolutely, and B, is conducted in accordance with the principles and rules. Um, of course, I've shortened that. So the principles and rules are in there. Uh, you can't miss them. And I'll put that on the screen, obviously, but uh, we teach this in our program. It's second nature to us, but we have to remember that this is the RTO standards. We just happen to be very familiar with them because we teach it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's RTOs out there that don't. Mm -hmm. uh, they will be teaching first aid. So principles of assessment. I remember doing that in my course. Mm -hmm. So in your mind, how, do, how does the average RTO, so not a TAE-based RTO, but how does the average RTO remember these principles and rules so that every time they do a validation, every time they're writing a new assessment or assessing someone, this is top of mind? Great question. I think it comes back to uniformed understanding. 
And so when I um, am looking at the uh, principles of assessment, I give it a subheading of what is a good assessment. Mm. And um, I, I know that there are quite in-depth definitions out there in textbooks and in the standards and all those kind of things. I like to break it down really, really, really simply. Valid doesn't actually match the unit. Flexible. Does it allow for RPL? Does it allow for different ways of being assessed? Mm. And does it allow for um, different modes of assessment? Reliable. Would all assessors use it the same way? And essentially, are the instructions clear enough? Mm. Is there any ambiguity? Yes or no? And then we've got... Um, Fairness, which in my mind comes back to discrimination and reasonable adjustment. But that's pretty yeah. much a summary of them. Yeah. So in a validation session, if everybody has that agreed understanding and you can write those on a whiteboard and just go, all right, is this assessment tool meeting that criteria, meeting that criteria, yeah. and really getting um, a frank and um, agreed definition of each of those. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times in my experience, fairness and flexibility have often overlapped and validity and reliability have often overlapped. Well, no, let's just get a clear cut exact definition of what each of those are mm. let's agree on all of that and then we'll go from there and um then uh, when we come to the rules of evidence which is essentially what is a good answer what is a good answer and a good answer is correct it is the student's own work it is up to date and it's long enough that's pretty much it. Okay. How do you make it so simple? Yes. Yeah. And so when I have trained other assessors in the past, I've said, all right, when you're looking at this answer, is it correct? Can you prove it scan its own work? Is it long enough? And is it up to date? Mm. And if it meets all those four boxes, then the answer is satisfactory. Great. Yeah. Um, and I think um, a great thing for any um, RTO major to do is create an assessor marking guide um, in the respect of how to actually assess and what are uh, make Absolutely. sure that those rules of evidence are actually part of the vernacular of the RTO and part of mm. the assessor's language that they use back to other trainers and also other um, students as well and saying, mm. yes, um, your answer is satisfactory because these things or not your satisfactory because it doesn't meet one of these rules of evidence and actually have that conversation yeah. because I don't really like the fact that so many students have gone through um, TAE courses or even diploma of TAE courses and they don't have a working knowledge of the rules of evidence or the principles of assessment. Mm. And I think that's um, just very sad, to be honest. Well, whenever anybody ever asks for an RPL with, with regards to the TAE, the very first thing I ask them mm. is, what are the principles of assessment, rules of evidence? If they don't know that, I usually, okay, time to enroll in the course. Mm. <laughs> because mm. that should be the one thing you really do remember yeah. from the course. Um, because training styles changed, mm. uh, training modes change, mm. as we know. Um, designing stuff, you may not be involved in that. So it, I think really for all trainers and assessors, that's the one thing that combines them. Yes. And uh, yeah, so that's why I really push on that now that's 1.8 we're not going to go into 1.9 today but we mm. are going to cover that um probably through to um the end of actually yeah we're going to cover that through to the end of um of this part of the standards next because this is now going go going to go into the trainers themselves mm -hmm. and what they need and i think that requires its own little podcast so yeah. we're going to do that but look thanks mark i think um, for anyone watching out there i hope you did really take away some of the simplicity that's in the standards but also how you really need to apply it on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not something you should 
think about once a year when you're doing a validation. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, man. You're welcome.